All right. Well, I want to begin by just reminding you of a verse of Scripture. It's in Proverbs 11, verse 14. And this is what it says. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in, in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Now, the implication of that verse is that when we surround ourselves with wise counselors, that we will not fall, but we'll be guided to the truth. But unfortunately for Job, the friends that have come to comfort him, because that's what we're told in chapter 2, they have come to comfort him, to provide counsel for him, they have come and they are failing in giving him wisdom and failing in providing for him safety. In particular, in chapter 2, it says, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they arrived, they were so shocked at what they saw. They didn't recognize him. And they cried out with loud voices. And they sat with him in silence for seven days. Now, we have already been introduced to two of those friends, Eliphaz and Bildad, and today we're going to come into, uh, to get to know uh, the last friend, and his name is Zophar. But the first two friends, each of them, had it in their own way, sought to help Job to understand the reason for his suffering. Both of them have the same basic but faulty working premise, and it's this, that the reason, Job, you are suffering is because of some sin in your life. Eliphaz, the first friend that speaks, he's saying, Job, you're struggling with small sins. They're they're small, and, and soon you will find relief from your struggle. Bildad comes on, and he follows up, and he says, Job, you are struggling with some serious sins, but not serious enough to take your life. And now, Bildad, sorry, Zophar is going to speak, and he ultimately is saying this, Job, you are struggling with secret sins, and you deserve the suffering that you're going through. And what we learn about Zophar is that he is a cold theologian who feels the freedom to say what is on his mind. And he's willing to arrogantly claim to know the answers to Job's struggles. Now, likely, you have met Zophar. Likely, you don't like Zophar. And likely, Zophar has caused harm when you have been going through suffering. He knows it, and he thinks he knows it all, and he wants you to know it too. Now, he may even be functioning out of genuineness, but his cold theology is what is behind what he's saying, and so it just rubs the wrong way. And so this morning, by means of a proposition, I want us to think about this passage in this way. This is a warning in this chapter for us not to be that friend who claims to know both the reason for and the answering for our suffering. All right? Now, there's probably someone coming to your mind right now, right? (laughs) 
You don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that lady. And so we want to be careful here to be warned. What we were told about these friends at the end of the book of Job is that God does not commend them for their works. And interspersed with the things that they're saying that are not true are things that are true. And so part of the difficulty for us is being able to separate what is truly um, something we need to pay attention to and something then that is also a distortion. So this is a sense in which this morning I am preaching a sermon from someone else that is not a good sermon. And so we got to sort through it all, right? You get me? So there's going to be some things here we're going to find that are good, but there's also going to be some things here that are difficult for us and really are contrary to God's way. So let's begin, first of all, by considering what I'm calling Zophar's heartless attack. Unlike Eliphaz, who was hesitant to intrude on Job's grief, and unlike Bildad, who pronounces himself offended by the things that Job is saying, Zophar considers it his moral duty to confront and silence Job. So he goes on the attack, and the tone here, friends, is aggressive. He thinks that both the counsel of Eliphaz and the words of Bildad should have been enough to convince Job that his problem is his sin, and that his sin needs to be repented of, and that his sin is the root of his suffering. But Job isn't quiet when those guys speak. In fact, he answers back both times. He continues to plead his innocence. He continues to resist the counsel of both of those friends. He continues to speak freely and challenge God, asking questions, why is this happening? And that just proves too much for theologically astute, cold-hearted Zophar. So he goes on a shameful and cruel attack of Job. Notice the shameful attack, first of all. He says, you should be shamed for your babbling talk. And it's not that Zophar can't understand what Job is saying, but that he doesn't like what Job is saying. Let's look now at verses 2 and 3. Should a a multitude of words go unanswered? And a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? He accuses Job of four things. Being long-winded. Right? A multitude of words. Filibustering. In other words, just speaking to speak to speak so that no one else can say anything. Empty content. That's just the babble. And also being blasphemous, mocking. The idea there is a a proud boasting. So he's saying you're mocking God with your babble of words. Therefore, you need to be shamed, you need to be judged, and you need to be silenced. In Zophar's mind, Job needs to be silenced and ashamed of his outbursts And he believes that Job, by his words, is in contempt of court. Now remember, a lot of these discussions are kind of picturing a courtroom scene. So Job, you are out of line, buddy. You shouldn't be saying these things. 
Job, you need to stop talking. You need to listen up, and you need to own up to your sin. But you're just going on and on and on about your innocence. Now, let's put this in perspective. Job has lost all of his possessions. He lost all his children. He is suffering heavily with his health, and he's grieving, and he's struggling to make sense of it all. And so, with the comfort and intimacy of his, of, of his friends, and he's anticipating help. He's in, anticipating some, some hope with their presence. But now Zophar comes and is calling him out, trying to silence him, wanting to shame him and judge him for his words born out of that grief. Imagine, you know, coming upon one of your friends because you found out that they've lost a loved one, and you go over to their home, and they start talking, and they're saying some things that you're like, you know, this person's really struggling, they're grieving, and some of the stuff theologically isn't exactly right, and you say, hey, stop it. What you're saying is a bunch of babble and nonsense. I don't think you're going to be too helpful. In fact, I don't think that you're going to be wanted to be around in that house very long. One of the pastors I, I met this week, just two weeks ago, lost his brother. He's about 50 years old. Um, and he was, we were just casually talking in the car, and he was saying, man, this has been really, really hard. He says, because you know, people will call up. And I know they're, they're trying to be helpful, but they're calling up, and they're like, you know, so tell me exactly what happened. And you know, as if, as if just gathering the information of how the person died. And he's like, click. They call up. I'm just like, click. I don't want to rehash this over and over and over again. And it's not that, you know, people out of concern are wrong by having a concern, but sometimes we're not taking into consideration what those people are going through who are struggling and who are suffering. So, friends, if you don't know what to say, let me give you some help. All right? It's very, very simple. If you don't know what to say, this might save you a lot of trouble. You might write this in your Bible somewhere so you don't forget it. It's really, really simple, but if you, anyone ever been to a funeral or a situation, you just don't know what to say, right? Here's something you can say. I'm so sorry. Please know that I love you and I'm praying for you. Is there anything that I can do to help? I truly mean that. What are you communicating? I'm grieving with you. I love you. I'm here to help. And I mean it. Because, you know, people say, I'll pray for you. No, no, I mean it. You're not putting that person in a place where they have to give you an answer. <laughs> You're not saying, you know, when can we get together? You're just saying, I love you. I'm sorry, I'm here to help. Please don't say things like, well, we know that God is sovereign, so it must have been God's timing. Or, hey, all things work together for good. Want to encourage you a little bit here? You know, it is scripture. Or, he or she is in a better place. Because often, they're not. And you're lying, and you're not being honest. Or it will get better. 
yes. But that person's in an ash heap right now. They're in the heart of their grief right now. Now, all the things I just mentioned are true. But there's a time and a place for theological correction. When someone's grieving, they want friends around them that will encourage them and help them not to say, your words of grief are a bunch of babble. I mean, you just see how shameless this is. So be mindful. Be sensitive. Be empathetic. Don't be that friend. But not only is this a shameful attack, it's also a cruel attack. There's some false accusations that are mentioned here. Job has spoken freely to God about his suffering and, and God's silence. We've, we've seen that over the past few weeks. Job has cried out to God for answers, but God is silent. Job simply wished that he had never been born. He said that a couple of times at different times. And so now, Zophar continues to go on the attack by twisting Job's words. He makes them say something completely different. Look at verse 4. He says, for you say, my doctrine is pure. And I am clean in God's eyes. Now, you might read that quickly and say, well, that kind of summarizes what he's been saying. But just think through. Here we have a theologically precise theologian coming along and shaming Job. So my doctrine is pure. Let's think about that one. Job had instructed others, certainly, we know that, but he doesn't think that he's infallible. He's not claiming to be infallible. He's simply claiming what he knows to be true about God. None of us have arrived at full understanding about God, right? And none of us have arrived at understanding all the ways of God. And Job is in the same place, and all he's doing is applying what he knows about God to his situation and trying to sort through it all. So Job's doctrine, what he says about God, is clearly in kind of a confused state. He's sorting through why God, why these arrows, why this struggle, why is this happening? He doesn't know. We know because we've read chapters 1 and 2, but Job doesn't know. And Zophar's harshness is to take Job's emotional words as gospel truth, as if Job was having an informed intellectual debate with his friends. No, he's grieving. And we say some things in our grief that sometimes may not be theologically correct. And as we've talked about before, we've got to be careful. We're not playing whack-a-mole with people in the context of their grief. But that's what Zophar is doing here. And what we have seen in the story so far is that Job is hurting, he's confused, he's uncertain, he's questioning. And understandably so, I think we would be too if we were in his situation. But he's also clinging on to what he knows about God. He's clinging on to his integrity. And that moves us into the next thing. He says, I am clean in God's eyes. Well, Job has actually never said that. What he has said is he's claiming his innocence. 
He's also claimed that he was blameless. But that's a far cry from claiming that he's without any sin. In fact, the statement that we looked at last time, where he says, how can a man be in the right before God, is a statement recognizing the fact that if I'm standing before God, God sees all of my sin. And you and I might be in a position of being blameless because we are people of integrity. Our accounts have been short with God. But if God were to stand in our presence, our sin would be exposed. But we'd also be comforted because we know He's not holding those against us anymore. So in other words, Job knew that he was in the right about not having a particular sin that caused the suffering and the trial that he was going through. He understood that to stand before God was to have that sin exposed. So to be clean in in Zophar's mind is sinless perfection, which is not what Job was saying. But to be blameless means to be a person of integrity, to be genuine. So Job is accusing, sorry, Zophar is accusing Job of being a Pharisee when Job is simply claiming that he's a believer, struggling with what he's going through. Now, friends, as is often the case, especially when people are wanting to debate, people will take your words and they will, they will twist them in such a way that fit their argument, that that kind of make them seem to say something that you're not actually saying, and that's what Zophar is doing. And he's saying, Job, you think you know it all, you think that you're clean, but you have got it all wrong. Now, how many of you have ever been a part of a debate team? Okay, remind me never to argue with you. Okay, very good, all right? Now, and you may or may not know anything about debate, but, but basically in the debate, you know, Two groups of people are given, uh, there's a topic and there's a positive and there's a negative. And you don't know if you're going to be arguing the positive, you're going to be arguing the negative, right? And here's the point. You can win a debate and be completely wrong. Just because you win the argument doesn't mean that you are right. And in this case, Zophar can win the argument by twisting Job's words But in the process, he is losing credibility with one of his friends. So this harsh theological twisting is undermining this friendship. Job is is hoping for a friend to come and help him, but Zophar comes along and he's just squeezing him more. But not only is this a cruel attack where he's twisting Job's word, but he's also cruelly attacking because he's twisting God's way. Now, you need to take a little breath before you consider the next couple of sentences that come out of Zophar's mouth. They're both arrogant and they're cruel, especially when they're coming from a friend. Look at verse 5 and 6. And you can just sense the, the arrogance that's happening here, right? But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. And that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. Oh, Job, if God could just right now speak to you and you could hear what he had to say, that would solve it all. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You see what Zophar is saying? He's saying two things. Job, 
I wish that God would answer you because if he did, he would tell you what is true because he has the secret of wisdom. He is manifold in understanding. Zophar is not for a moment thinking that God will actually speak to Job because God doesn't need to. And the reason he doesn't need to is because I'm here. And I'll tell you what God thinks. And let me tell you what God thinks. Oh, his, he's so wise. He's so magnificent. But, but let me tell you what God thinks. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Now just think about that statement. Job, you've lost your family. You've lost your possessions. You've lost your place in society. You're losing your health. But that is all God's mercy. Because you deserve far more. You try that out with someone who's just lost a friend. Yeah, I know they died, but they deserved it. And you deserve to lose them too. Just God's mercy. You should be thankful for God's mercy. You see how, how horrible this is, right? So friends, on, on the top of the list of things never to say to someone who is struggling because of the loss of family and health is God has been merciful to you. You know that you deserve so much more suffering than you've experienced. What a heartless jerk. I'm sorry, I'm a pastor. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. What an arrogant, heartless jerk. <laughs> Don't be that guy. Don't be that friend. Don't be that woman. Zophar's heartless attack. But now Zophar continues on because he's not done. He's still pressing on. He still wants to get to the bottom line. And so he patronizes Job here in verses 7 through 12. He's out to prove his point. And what is his point? That no matter how great or how small your sin is, Job, and certainly your sin is great and is greater than you imagine, it's still sin. And no matter how much mercy there is in this world, it is always tempered by justice. God will always exercise his justice on that sin. And it's God who regulates the punishment. And remember, he, like his other two friends, are functioning with the same faulty paradigm that the reason Job is suffering is because of sin. And we know that isn't true. Why? Because the text of God's word tells us that that is not true. Chapter 1 and 2 of the book. He's saying, you can't get away with sin with God. And God knows who's guilty and who is not. And so no matter how much you protest your innocence, Job, God knows that you are a guilty man. So he, he comes up now with a set of questions. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? In other words, can you really understand God? Can you comprehend how magnificent He really is? And what are the limits of His might? 
And he gives four descriptions here. It, it is higher than the heavens. It is deeper than the grave. It's longer than the earth. It's broader than the sea. The heaven, the grave, the earth, and the sea. Four dimensions of this human world that Zophar uses now to describe the fullness of God's knowledge and wisdom. This is who God is. This is where I would say, Zophar, you are right. This is a description of God. God is magnificent. The point is that God's knowledge is beyond human knowledge. It cannot be probed to its fullest extent. We can't know the mind of God fully. Certainly we can't as humans. So what can you do? What can you hope to do? He is too high. What can you hope to know? His ways are too deep for our puny understanding. So this is the picture he's painting. Here's the illustration or or the, um, the question. And now he moves on to an illustration. And he moves on in this illustration by now identifying God as judge. Verse 10, if he passes through and imprisons and summons the court. As a judge now, he's, he's now um, giving a sentence to a particular individual who can turn him back. God, because he's so vast and magnificent, can determine as judge whatever the consequence is going to be, whatever the sentence is going to be. Why? Because he's God. And you and I can't turn him back. I would agree with that too. He knows. He knows worthless men. He, he sees iniquity. You can't hide your sin from God. You can't rename them and pretend that your sins don't exist. You can't cover yourself with a, a man-made fig leaf and think that God is somehow blind to them all. He can see it all. And friends, he knows who is worthless and who is righteous. He can, understand, he can separate the sheep from the goats. He understands those things, right? He knows who's still stained with sin, and he knows who's been washed in the blood of the Lamb. He knows it all. So to challenge such a magnificent, authoritative, penetrating God is the mark of a stupid fool. You say, oh, you shouldn't say stupid, Rod. I know, I'm just reading scripture. Notice what it says here. But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's donkey's colt is born a man. He's saying, Job, you are a worthless man and an empty-headed donkey if you do not listen to what I am saying. And I'm sure Job is thinking, okay, Zophar, why don't you just beat me while I'm down? I mean, what kind of friend is this? What kind of friend speaks to another friend, in particular in this grief? A friend that is convinced that he's right and that he knows and wants to convince you, regardless of what you're going through, that this is the way you need to think. There's a coldness here about it. So having patronized Job here, we get now into Zophar's deceptive appeal. So Zophar has thought deeply about God. He turns to Job and gives him conditional advice. 
Job's two other friends had done some similar things, but they kind of, they went at it a little differently. Eliphaz kind of slides it indelicately and uses himself as a model to follow. He says, as for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. He's gentle. Bildad, however, sees only two conditions, and those two conditions are devout prayer and a blameless life. But now Zophar is much more direct and assured that what Job needs to do is twofold. I'll summarize it, prayer and the renouncing of sin. So first of all, he says, Job, you must renounce your sin. Look at verse 13. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. He's saying, orient your heart to God. This is the first thing. Orient your heart to God. This is speaking of a steadfast focus, a a, a faithfulness to God that that comes out of your heart orientation. This is good counsel, friends. This is what everyone should be doing if they are a follower of Christ, and they should be doing it all times. We should be doing that in the good times because in the good times actually are times when we tend to forget about God. We, think we, you know, we tend to forget about being thankful and, and mindful that what we have is because of Him. But certainly in the rough times, the difficult times, we need to keep our head. We need to keep our focus. So it's conditional here, and it's a reminder to us all that we can in every situation come boldly to the throne of God through Christ. He's saying you must renounce your sin, secondly. If you, if you, first of all, open your heart to God, what you ultimately need to do then is to renounce your sin. So if there's sin in your hand, get rid of it. Hands that are unclean cannot be presented to God in prayer. So, so how does Zophar propose that he get rid of his sin. And this is interesting, isn't it? And this is profound. And this is where everything falls flat. It's not by sacrifice. It's not by any atonement. It's not by repentance, but it's by renouncing it and distancing yourself from it, right? For Zophar, sin is not something to be repented of but to distance yourself from. So it shouldn't be near you. It shouldn't be in your tent, as he says. It shouldn't be a guest in your house. Sin should be put far away from you. So what Zophar is saying is this. Once sin is committed, there is nothing you can do about it except to suffer the inevitable consequences it brings. There's no hope of forgiveness, just a hope that comes out of staying away from it. And friends, it's bound up in our Christian culture too. I used to minister in the South, in particular when I was in, in college. And I remember you know, going and doing ministry and, and witnessing to people and I'd run into some good old boys. There they are, they're in their trucks. And you talk to them about, you know, about the gospel and they would say, I'm a good Christian. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't run with women who do. And that was kind of the, the measure of the Christianity. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. And you see, friends, there, there's so many people that are darkening the doors of churches today who have an I don't mentality about their relationship with God. Now, certainly, we need to be mindful and 
and thoughtful about the things we choose to do that are a reflection of a relationship with God. But, but saying, I don't do certain things, is not the gospel and does not get you into the kingdom. You have not been converted unless you have been regenerated by what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for your sins. You see, this is where, this is where Zophar's counsel falls flat. He begins well. But his deceptive view of sin and what is needed for one to be reconciled to God is woefully lacking. Scripture is clear. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, confession brings about a reorienting to God. It's not just, okay, it's in the past, now I just need to press on and somehow my pressing on and keeping sin out of the way is going to bring blessing. It's the reorienting to God that is far more important. Now, certainly, we need to be mindful of those things. Now, this is kind of a, a formula that is used in wisdom literature. Notice we have this going on here, right? If, if, then, in verse 15. You see that there? In verse 13, if you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. And then you jump down to verse 15, surely then. But you see, when, when Zophar is coming to Job, he already has in his mind Job's problem. So he's not speaking hypothetically here, really. What he's actually saying is, if... Begin there at verse 13. If you prepare your heart and you stretch out your hands toward him. In other words, if you orient yourself to him, good. But then he moves on. And it's not really if, it's since. Because he's already convinced now that Job's problem is his iniquity. So verse 14 would be, since iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tent. Because he's already, he's already determined that's the answer. Now, we've seen now you must renounce your sin, but now we have a blessing and we have a warning. We read verses 15 through 19 here. We find this blessing. If you renounce your sin, blessing will come. Just look at the long list of blessing that Zophar offers Job if he will simply listen to his counsel. Verse 15 you will be confident and secure. He says, surely then, you will lift up your face without blemish, and you will be secure and will not fear. Then he'll forget and he'll remember. These two words work together. You will forget your misery and you will remember it as waters that have passed away. In other words, you will forget it, but in a sense, it will be, it will be a reminder to you of provision for you in the future. You will be light, in light, rather than darkness. Verse 17, your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. Again, in verse... They said I was going to preach like a prosperity gospel preacher this morning, so um, hang with me here, okay? Um... Obviously, that's a joke, right? Um, verse 18, you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. So there's hope 
and rest. And then in verse 19, you will be powerful and respected. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. These are all couplets together that are listing all these blessings that will happen. You will be blessed if you renounce your sin. But if you don't renounce, suffering will come. There will only be more and more suffering. Look at verse 20. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. They'll abandon hope. In other words, their eyes will abandon the things that they were longing for, that they looked and longed for to pr provide the, the, the need to satisfy their problem. The possibility of escaping will be lost. Their hope will have no substance. It's only despair. The, the, the breathing of a breath. You guys know the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, breath of breath. It's just despair. It's just despair. Now, friends, we, we come now to the end of this text. I want to kind of summarize some of the things that are going on. I want to paint a picture in summary of what's taken place so far. So Zo this is Zophar's argument, and it goes like this. Job, you have committed some kind of sin. That is why you're suffering. You are being punished for that sin. And truth be told, what you have experienced is, in reality, mercy because you deserve so much more. Your sin cannot be atoned for. It cannot be forgiven or prayed away. What you have to do is twofold. You have to orient yourself once again toward God, and you have to renounce your sin and begin a fresh start. Embark on a new life of obedience before God. And if you do that, you will be blessed in abundance. And if you don't, you will suffer more. Now, friends, does that not sound like a lot of preaching that has taken place through the years? If you're just obedient, if you're just obedient, I'm at youth conferences, if you're just obedient, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. This is the, this is the mechanism that is being used here. But although there are a number of things that Zophar says about God that are true, Zophar has ultimately done an injustice to God in leaving no space for any further exercise of mercy or forgiveness. His theology is simple. There's no point crying over spilled milk or even spilled blood. The past is the past. Pull up your bootstraps. Press on. Now, friends, let me remind you of something. That in chapter 2, we find God and Satan interacting together, and then Satan is silent. He's gone. He's not one of the characters in play. But his voice is echoing through the story. And it's echoing through the words of the friends he hasn't really disappeared, has he? His voice is subtle, it's devious, it's manipulative with the goal of getting Job to forsake his integrity, integrity with God. He wants desperately for Job to say, okay, it was my sin, rather than I am right before God. Because in doing that, that would undermine God's faithfulness and what God said about Job himself, that he is blameless 
he's above reproach, a man who fears God and turns away from evil. And so Job is holding on to what he knows to be true, although he didn't hear that conversation. Now, do you remember how Satan spoke to Jesus in the wilderness? How he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, and he said, all this I can give you if you but bow down and worship me. And Zophar is saying to Job, and we would say, Satan through Zophar is saying to Job, all this I can give you, all that you've lost can be restored to you if you just forsake your integrity. See, Job is getting hammered here. Job says, I am blameless. I have not sinned. I am innocent of this. And his friends are saying, you have sinned. 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 Stop saying that, Job. Stop saying that. But if you do give in to them, Job will simply distort the character of God. So he's saying, Job, you need to join me. You need to join your other friends and recognize that we are right, that God is simply some sort of mechanical justice machine into which you input behavior, he turns the crank, and automatically what comes out is either blessing or judgment based on what you have done. Just forsake your integrity, Job. Stop protesting your innocence. And then everything you've lost will be restored to you. Come on. Come on. You see the lure of this? But if he gives in, Satan, or say Job, is still going to be in more and more bondage. Now, let me bring this to a close with three concluding thoughts to help us sort through this. First of all, I want to challenge you to be a faithful listener. In the context of grief and suffering, be a faithful listener. When a person hurts, their hurt is real, regardless of the reason behind their hurt. And the reason behind their hurt may be the result of sin. But if we go in and we start whacking away at sin, and we're not caring for the person, we're not listening to the person, we're doing them a disservice in our shepherding and our caring. Zophar gets caught up in the reasons for the hurt rather than listening to the hurt that Job feels. And so he seeks to interpret the ways of God for Job's life. It's perfectly fine to say to someone that is asking you the question, why did this happen? By saying, I don't know. But I'm here. And if you want to talk, we can talk. But be careful that you're not like steering that conversation now to kind of say, well, I think this is what it is, and I think this is what it is. Yeah, you, you get into trouble there. It's hard to have a conversation with someone who does not know how to listen, who always wants to correct you thinks he or she knows what God is doing in your life. Don't be that friend. 
Secondly, learn to be a, a, a discerning theologian. You can have the character of God right and still be wrong about the ways of God in a person's life. And that's what we see in this text, isn't it? Here is God. He's higher than the heavens. He's deeper than Sheol. He's longer than the earth. He's broader than the sea. And his ways are deep and they're, they're limitless. They cannot be exhausted. But Zophar thinks that he is wise enough to speak for God and with the knowledge of God. Friends, this is, this is what often happens in the evangelical church. People who attend church have some things right about the person of God or the person of Christ, and we would say that they're orthodox in their basic doctrine. But the way they go about discerning the ways of God is not always what Scripture says. For example, quoting Scripture out of context. Um, lucky dipping. You know what lucky dipping is? God, speak to me. Oh, right there. There's a verse. King Azaharis, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the... And somehow you think that the Holy Spirit's going to speak like that. Or dreams or visions, as if you had a dream, and it's like, God spoke to me, and you need to hear this. Got a message from God. In some contexts, it would be called a word of knowledge. For us, maybe it would be spiritual impressions or intuitions. Friends, listen. This is God's breathed word. He has spoken. And our job as followers of Christ is to, is to be in this word, that, it, that, it, that it, is, it is a part of who we are. We are living and breathing his word so that when we hear things that are error, we're going to his word to be able to then to say, this is what is true. But careful in how and when and where we're applying that truth. So, friends, learn to be a discerning theologian. Learn to be careful as you study God's word so that you can truly help people who are struggling in their moment of suffering. And finally, learn to share in the sufferings of Christ. Now, this chapter has been full of half-truths. Here's a truth, here's error. Here's a truth, here's error. Zophar has painted some accurate pictures of who God is, but at the same time, he has mingled it with distorted views of how God works. Now, when we turn our attention to the New Testament and we hear what the Apostle Paul says, we realize that part of discipleship is to suffer. And he, in fact, this is what Paul says, and I'm reading Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, talking about Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. So Paul wanted to imitate experiential or in an experiential way this relationship with Christ that included resurrection power, but also uh, the suffering that, that Christ um, went through. And he knew that both of those things would move him to be more and more like Jesus. So this suffering is part of discipleship. In other words, this suffering isn't necessarily connected to a particular sin. It's just suffering. 
in Colossians 1.14, or 124, I should say. This is what Paul says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And as we just kind of carefully think through that statement, Paul is, is not saying that Jesus, in a sense, is still suffering on the cross, as the Catholics would say. But what he's saying is that when, when I or other believers suffer, we are fleshing out the reality that Christ is also suffering with us. We are not independent of that. He is suffering with us as we suffer. And then in Corinth, as he wrote the second letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, hear what he says. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. Utterly burdened beyond our strength. You ever been there? So exhausted, so tired, beyond your ability, that we despaired of life itself. If we continue on, we're just going to die. This is the extent he's talking about. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. So he gives the reason for it. And the reason for the suffering was not sin. The reason for the suffering was for the ministry of the gospel. See, what I'm trying to show you just from these brief little statements here in the New Testament is that, that suffering isn't always the result of sin. And there are many times we can't explain the why of it. But we can say, God, you know. You understand. You are fully and completely aware. And finally, even Jesus knew, being sinless, that he would suffer we studied this when we went through Mark, but Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus didn't suffer because of sin. He suffered for sin. This morning, I want to um, just finish up by drawing your attention to a verse of scripture we began with. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And this is where Albert began our time together. And I think it's worth reading it now in light of this text. Romans 8.31 what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, just pause there. Was God for Job? Even in his suffering? <laughs> you better believe it. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, there's a lot of people that can be against you, but in reality, they're nothing in comparison to God, right? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen, if we're God's children, he has our back. Even in times of suffering, when we can't connect the dots, and we don't understand, and those even closest to us in their attempt to help, 
are even causing more hurt. God is still for us. Lord, help us to ponder this. This These are not easy topics for us. And yet you have allowed this story of Job to draw our attention to our own struggle and suffering. And times in our lives when we've gone through things where we can't connect the dots. We don't understand why these things are happening. And certainly we recognize, Lord, that, that we are sinful people. We, we do sin and we struggle with our sin. And yet what we're going through is not connected to necessarily a particular sin in our life that would be the result of a particular consequence. But these things are happening, Lord or they're not happening, or just the, the way things are, are, are unfolding in our lives, Lord, just seem confusing and, and strange. And Lord, help us just to, to settle into Job and to remind ourselves that when other people think they know the answers, that you ultimately do. And that our counsel and that our help and that our satisfaction as much as we would like for it to come from other people, the place we need to run is to you. And Lord, I know a lot of the things that our church family is going through right now. There's sickness, there's family heartache, there's financial struggles, there's deep, deep health issues. And so many times, Lord, it's discouraging. We just say, why? Why? And sometimes we need to be people who are seasoned enough with grace that we don't try and give specific answers, but we point those people who are struggling to you. Lord, help us to be a wise and gentle body of believers, committed to the ministry of the word, or not the beating of each other over the head with the word, but to minister of the word. And that means, Lord, being, being careful and thoughtful and mindful of what people need in a particular moment. Lord, help us not to be that friend. Help us to be a reflection of Christ. Ministering grace. Drawing our attention to you. Weeping with those who weep. And knowing, Lord, that this this life is preparation for eternity. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to press on in this book, to learn and to grow as a result. We ask this now in your precious name.